Hi everybody, my name is Dean Saffron. I'm a commercial and documentary photographer filmmaker. I specialize in human interest stories. You can view my work at deansaffron.com. I also love all furry babies, so I simply had to start a podcast called Fur Filment, where each week I will explore a different person's life story and that of their pets. If you want to be on the show or you know a person that should be on the show, please contact us at our Facebook page, Furfilment. Okay, sit back, relax and enjoy. Okay, today is really exciting for me because we have Russell Sturgis. Russell Sturgis started his life as an osteopath and grew up in Dolby. Now, this is very important because it's a very country town in Queensland, and you're going to be quite surprised that he has turned from being an osteopath to making what I believe will be on Oprah's best top-selling books. It's the spiritual roots of tarot, the Cathacode hidden in the cards. So thank you very much for joining me, Russell. It's my absolute pleasure. <laughs> oh, stop it. No, don't stop it. All right. So, Russ, um, can you just start by giving, giving our listeners a little bit of background about where you grew up and, and how did you change? Because you were in a very specific religious sect, I, I would like to say, or group, um, and then you went on this journey. So just fill us in a little bit. So um, I was born in Dolby, uh, which is rural Queensland, and my mum and dad moved there um, just a couple of months actually before I was born. But the other thing that happened at the same time is that uh, they had made the decision to become Mormons at the same time. So effectively, uh, I was born into a Mormon household. Um, and so, you know, my dad had come from um, a typical Australian farming environment out at Chinchilla, where, um, you know, drinking was an intrinsic part of the Australian lifestyle and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he made this decision to uh, get involved um, in, in, in a, well, in the Mormon church, which was pretty unusual in the um, late 50s for anyone to, to, to make that sort of decision. But Dad had investigated a lot of religions and uh, this was the one that he really connected with. So I grew up with that and I um, was um, a Mormon missionary um, in South Australia and in the Northern Territory. I had a white shirt and tie and knocked on doors. And no. Yeah, yeah, I was one of those guys. That <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, do Mormons, uh, the missionaries, do they do that everywhere in the world or is that a specific thing? in Australia that they go and knock on the door uh, and what no, no, age no. group? Oh, well, the age group is typically 19 to 21. Okay. Um, typically, um, back in, I, I don't know about now because I've been in the, involved in the church for years, but, but the women would tend to be older. Uh, if they went, um, they were kind of expected to get married and have children. And if that didn't happen, then you went on a mission. But I, uh, um, um, no, the, it's, it's, it's pretty well, well worldwide. I served my mission in Australia, but one of my other brothers went to New Zealand and the other one went to Haiti. To Haiti. I oh, love Haiti. Yeah. Have you got any stories about that when you were on the, the mission? Well, we're talking about, you know, um, um, fur 
Yes. And animals, and and, it, and of course, door knocking. One of the greatest dangers is, of course, dogs. <laughs> yes. And um, and I can remember uh, on one occasion uh, knocking on a door, and this uh, German shepherd come running down the side of the house very, very aggressively. And and I had a, a an American companion who was with me, and he just was scared of dogs. And and um, and so as this dog came running around, he sort of hopped behind me and put me between him and the dog and this dog just bypassed me and got him. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that goes to show a lot of things there. I mean, he, I mean, really, if someone said, well, we're going to sacrifice you, he would have just fed you to the lions. Absolutely. And that's what he tried to do. Absolutely. And, oh, uh, my gosh. Lots of dog stories during the course of my time there. but And um, it is fulfillment. Yeah. So, okay, what age did you realise that the, this religion was not going to be what you wanted to follow? So I had a really interesting experience. My dad um, died from complications from prostate cancer when I was 29. And I was actively involved in the church at this point. And I had a series of dreams after he died with him visiting me in these dreams. And he started teaching me about concepts of love in a language that wasn't familiar to me in the the way in which it had been explained in the church. And at one particular dream, uh, he said, this is the last dream. He said, is there anything that you want to know? Do you have a question? And I said, yes. I said, how does Mormonism fit into truth? I said, you've been giving me this new perspective. How does it fit in? And what he did was he took his hand and he drew a circle and it left a, a, a outline that became brilliant light. And it was about 10 foot in diameter. It was wow. just this brilliant golden light and it made everything translucent. And he said, that's truth. And then he took his finger and drew a circle that was maybe about the diameter of a hand and it left a dark outline. He said, that's the Mormon church. It's just a tiny part of a much bigger truth. But I think that you've, um, you've nailed upon something that I won't get too in-depth with my own beliefs, but I, I essentially grew up Catholic, um, have read a lot about Buddhism, and I've worked in Muslim countries, so I've read, uh, well, as much as I could over the Quran, and I don't know anything about the Mormon religion, but seeing that your dad from beyond has come back and showing you that really this bit of information is not everything is uh, kind of the way I, I see all religions is it's just a, it's a guide and I know that devout people are going to hate me for saying this but I think there's a lot more to the universe than just your own um, small or tiny narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree uh, 100%. And, and that then became the journey then for me, exploring other things. And um, to carry that narrative on, um, uh, Dad had died in the July. These dreams were sort of August, September, October over a three-month period. And then Christmas came and my mum gave me a book called Teach Only Love written by Jerry Jampolsky, which is Course in Miracles Aligned. Yes. Um, of course, Jerry, I think, may have been dyslexic, I'm not sure, but um, he was a psychiatrist. 
psychiatrist, um, highly renowned, and um, he basically, his work he called attitudinal healing, and he basically said it's a course of miracles for dummies because he wanted <laughs> to simplify because it's such a, a, a intellectually, um, a, a, such an intellectual approach to spirituality. Anyway, um, she gave me a copy of this book. I started reading this book, and it was everything my father had been talking to me about in these dreams. It was sort of like I was reading it all over again and then Providence had it Jerry Jampolsky was at the Brisbane Relaxation Centre just a couple of months later and and I got to go and and hear him speak and next thing he said well why don't you come to um, the States and come into my centre and learn more about this work and you could bring it back to um, Dolby and uh, wow so that was really a journey that your father helped you from beyond mm-hmm. um help you start to get on by so you went to america yeah well even that in itself i, I hope maybe my dad helped from the other side too because well, i just didn't have the resources i had young children i just got a mortgage on a new home and i had a, a, a business that i just bought a new building and and so I was financially and and buying a ticket to go to America was ridiculous and um, wasn't going to happen anyway this letter turns up and says congratulations you've won a trip to the United States serious yeah some there was a, a muffins an English muffins competition that one of the companies had and my wife had filled out the competition thing and we won it and so it paid for me to be able to go to the States and do this training with Jerry and another lady in Washington DC by the name of Susan Trout and What's the chances of that, really? I mean, if I was in the competition, you would have lost because I'm a muffin trollop. <laughs> um, I only like puppies and muffins. But, but you did really well. Okay, so then after that, you um, tell me the journey how you ended up in Italy, right. really studying from the ground up. The, the history of the spiritual roots of the tarot. tarot. So um, the the other person that I went and did training with in the States was Susan Trout, who ran the Centre for Attitudinal Studies in Washington, D.C. And Susan was much more um, broader in her approach and probably more um, esoteric in her approach. And so she incorporated things like mandalas and um, symbolism and Jungian symbolism and dream analysis and all those sorts of things. And I was introduced to all of that and um, and so I started um, drawing mandalas. And one of the things that happened was not long after I got home from the States, I had a, a, a pivotal dream and dreams have been pivotal in my life. And this was a particularly pivotal one where I dreamt that I was hunting a anaconda-style snake. You know, it's not a little snake. We're talking like from the movie Anaconda. This was sort of a 30, 25-foot-long snake that was – and I'm hunting this thing. And I I'm in trauma. <laughs> not a snake man yeah and so i corner this snake and everything that i do to try and kill it i can't i can't hurt it wow. and all of a sudden the dream changes and the snake's now chasing me and eventually the snake corners me and everything that the snake does it can't hurt me and it was this really obscure thing. And so I, I went into really studying the essence of snakes um, as a symbolic measure. And snakes are about 
change or transformation because they shed their skin and are reborn. And so it's often seen as a symbol of rebirth when, when you have snake symbols. And of course, this was what was going on in my world at this time. This was a major and this was a huge transformation in terms of my own personal life at this point. So I started drawing snakes, the orbis, you know, where the snake's chasing its own tail yes. and eating its own tail. And, and that can convert into a uh, lemniscate, which is that lazy eight on its side. That's another form of it. And and I started drawing that. And then um, um, when I'd been in in um, um, the States, I, I acquired my first set of Cara cards. It was very bizarre. I um, was in Boston. I, I, as a result of going over, I started lecturing extensively through the United States on Bowen therapy and my bodywork that I was involved in. And I was buying Christmas presents for the kids, and I was in this um, really lovely um, shop that was a game shop, basically. And he was this sort of cupboard full of tarot cards. And as I walked past, I sort of looked at one. And next thing, this voice in my head says, buy that pack of cards I'm going I'm not going to buy a pack of tarot cards I'm still <laughs> still got some Mormon threads going on there yeah. you know I, that's the yeah, book of the devil and I sort of went a bit further and this voice in my head go, go back and buy that set of cards no way and so I went back and I bought that set of cards and and they sat there for a while and I didn't do anything with them because I think I was still dealing with my own um, um, programming and narrative around the, the cards but but anyway um, cut a long story short, I um, came across a book called uh, Jung and Tarot by Sally Nichol, and that really sort of opened up the cards. And so I started using the cards in my mandala work, and um, and I started placing the cards around the 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 um, snake in this lemniscate position. And I'm thinking, there's really something to this, and. Yes. Um, and then just continued on doing the attitudinal healing, and which really is about a form of mindfulness. It was about you know trying to align a life with mindfulness. And during this time, I get divorced, and you know a whole lot of stuff goes on in my life where it goes ass up, yeah, um, as often does when you make those sorts of changes. And and um, and I got to a point though where I sort of began to really think about what I had seen with this Orbis in the figure eight and the 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 the, the major arcana, which are the twenty two picture cards, and um, and I decided that I wanted to write something about it, and so I made the decision to cash in my assets and um, I went and lived in Italy for just short of a year living in a mountain village halfway between Rome and Naples and I spent the year uh, researching and writing um, about um, the tarot. So um, two things. The, the, the first thing is this is not Russell's first book. He actually, when he was talking about um, being in America lecturing, he's really quite well known for being a Bowen therapy specialist. And he wrote a book about this, which was one of the first books that really went into great detail on on the essence of um, how to improve yourself and the the parts of your body and, and trying to get in line. So it's it's not a far stretch for me to believe that you would go into the, the tarot line of things. Hmm. But when you did um, do your study in Italy in this small village, was there a significance 
to this village? Did it have some... No, it was just a random... No, no, it wasn't random. Um, I was living in um, Hawthorne in Brisbane at the time and my youngest daughter was going to high school and there was a collective of schools, um, uh, Balmoral State High School and five primary feeder schools and they worked collectively in shared resources. And so I, um, I have a dis- my youngest daughter is intellectually impaired and has Williams syndrome and so I was very actively involved in the PNC. I've always done that to help support special ed in schools because they don't always get the the support they need and it turned out that one of the I was talking to one of the other principals and saying I was thinking about um, possibly going to Italy and she said oh the funniest thing my husband and I own an apartment in this mountain village south of Rome that we rent out to Aussies go over to (laughs) which I had no idea so um, I said would you rent it for six months and she said we'd love to rent it for six months totally serendipitous absolutely and after just a few months I realized that I needed more time so I ended up staying there for 10 months and um, lucky them yeah, yeah, lucky them, absolutely. Um, okay, well, let's get on to the tarot because, mm. um, unfortunately, we've already spoken for quite some time and that's not enough because, Russell, I could talk to you forever. But if we go through the cards and people are going to start to wonder why would Furfilment, a podcast about animals, even though you've explained a bit about the snake, would want to talk about tarot cards. But I was looking at them recently and I saw... the. the Fool card, for an example. Can you explain um, the fool card? <laughs> well, depending on which version of the cards you're looking at, some of the early, um, and we're talking now, um, the cards that emerge out of France, sort of from the 1600s, um, show the fool walking along and his pants are torn. And you, they'll often, not always, but sometimes, not often, sometimes they'll display the penis and testicles hanging out of the pants and here's the dog attacking um, the, 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 the penis and testicles. And, and that's really, um, the fool represents um, um, div- a, a, an aspect of divine consciousness um, coming into human consciousness and the dog represents at one level the fact that he's focusing on the on the um, testicles and the, the penis it's about sort of that 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 sort of absolute based level of human consciousness basically which you know we could go on forever but genetically speaking we're not that far uh, removed from our cavemen so I, I could see that now with tarot now it's quite interesting um can you explain how tarot started because uh, you were telling me that um, a lot of people uh, always think like an esoteric uh, version of the tarot and that's simply not the case so can you give us the nut and bolts of how tarot started yep so the first thing is is that reading cards, as in esoteric or doing readings for people, that didn't start to happen until the end of the 1600s and going into the 1700s. Wow. The first tarot cards emerged during the 1400s, sorry, in the 15th century. That's a big difference. So there's a few hundred years. Yeah. And, and in that gap between, they were primarily used for playing games. As you said, because they were the original cards for games. So- Absolutely. But... So what happened was, um, and and this is what my whole book is really about, is the Cathars. So the Cathars were a religious group who were Gnostic Christians that became, they they had a meteoric rise in southern France um, from the um, 12th century um, through to the 
13th century, you know, that 150 years, it, it, was, it just went ape. And, of course, these were really um, pious people. They, their, their perfecti were kind. They, they lived a theology of love. Um, they aligned themselves with kindness um, as, as their way of approaching their religion. And, of course, this kind of showed um, up the Catholic Church and what it was doing. Pope Innocent III, by the year... 1209 decides we need to get rid of these guys because they're getting more popular with the nobles, which was about money, than what we are. And um, and so we need to get rid of these guys. So they commissioned the um, Albigensian Crusade. So the nobles of northern France sided with the Pope and came down and basically went through and systematically cleared out southern France of the, the Cathar. And so, you know, one of the famous stories is Bézier. Um, uh, when they went to go into Bézier to, and they were killing the, the Cathars, they came back to Amoud, who was the head of the, the um, um, crusade, and sort of said, look, we can't tell the difference between the Catholics and the, and the Cathar. They're so integrated yes. that we can't actually separate them out. And there's a famous line where Amoud says, kill them all because God knows his own. And they literally went into that city and wiped out every man, woman and child. I mean, how do the Catholics even get their head around that sort of atrocity, trying to annihilate? I mean, we know there's been wars between other religions and the Catholics, but, like, what it was so threatening because these people, the Cathar, were just interested in, in doing good, and the Catholics are like, well, hold on a second. We really need to dominate the world. And, and hmm. that, that says a lot. And I know I'm not going to be popular for bringing all this up, but I'm quite surprised. And there's also, um, I got told recently that the Cathars were happy to be executed. Well, it's not that they were happy, but, um, but in their philosophy, uh, if they had made their devotion, their, their, their sort of com- spiritual commitment, their baptism that they do, and they were able to keep the, their commandments or live by these principles, um, if they were executed it meant that they just got tickets straight into heaven. And so so they weren't resistive of it, particularly, the, and these were the perfecti who were the sort of the, the higher order. So within the Cathar church, there were perfecti who were the priests, which, and this is one of the things that's worth pointing out, is that they gave women the same status as men. The interesting thing about the tarot cards is that out of 22 images, 12 of them have either symbols or images of women out of the, the 22 cards. So this goes right against what was culturally the norm at this time. They were seeing women as equal, so their priests were men and women. How um, forward thinking is that? Have they survived till today? I mean, well, I really don't know. Well, we, what we do know is that the Catholic Church, besides getting rid of the, the um, people, they also worked very hard at getting rid of any evidence of their teachings. And so they, the, 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 the perfecto were academia. They, they were intelligentsia. They would debate the Dominicans and the Franciscans in front of the public to try and win over people. And they had books. A lot of paintings show the Cathars with books. So, so they were, But they were manuscripts, of course. Now, and this leads into where I want to go in terms of your previous question, and that is that, that when they 
they moved from what was left of the Cathar moved to northern Italy. Yes. The Visconti in Milan had been excommunicated by the church and this became a safe haven for them, um, despite, in spite of the fact that the, um, um, the Inquisition headquarters was in, was in Milan um, because after the, the, the crusade only lasted 20 years and then they instituted the Inquisition that went on for till uh, probably another... 110 years. That's quite and, amazing. Which isn't is it? amazing. Yeah. And and they and by 1350, all of the known Cathars had been uh, wiped out. So here we are in Milan, and um, and these people are finding safe port in in Milan, but they're about to be wiped out, and the books are being got rid of. And now the piece of evidence I don't have in my writing, and I can only assume is what happens is people went underground, and that wasn't uncommon yes. in in Europe at the time. And these cards appeared, and what they needed was essentially a way of being able to um, keep their messages in these images and, and communicate if, with each other and and so i basically referred to them as portable stained glass windows so that's these beautiful russell <laughs> i i really love that yeah. i love that that just it conjures up everything that i think tarot cards are yeah so yeah keep going please so so what we've got then are these 22 cards that that are created that basically have captured the core essence of their deep theology and this is a theology of love this is a theology and you know, we live in a time right now where people are just so immersed in fear and what we need is a theology of love and the churches predominantly have lost the mandate for that i'm sorry yes because so much of what they've done has been fear-based even their teachings around god is fear-based well everything's fear-based i mean yeah. i grew up catholic and it was a simple case of if you do anything you're going to be punished that was yeah. this whole negative thinking but you could go to church on saturday and confess and you're right you could start again well <laughs> my father was always doing that he had mistresses but at the same time he'd go in and go oh i'm really sorry about that what'd you do this week and then you know yeah. so yeah. i'm with you there <laughs> so anyway um so what ended up happening we we have these playing cards and these these images uh, 22 other cards emerge now a lot of people aren't aware but there used to be entertainment tax for playing cards in in really? uh, italy yes you had to pay tax if you were found playing cards without a franked ace of spades you could be fined or put into jail that's fantastic and so there's a story and I don't, it's, a, it's a good story, that this was tax evasion. What they did was they combined the two sets of cards so that they didn't have to pay two lots of entertainment tax. And these cards were married with these other cards and they became known as the, the Taroki and later the tarot cards. But certainly um, what we know of that, and there's lots of evidence of the games, um, they were then used for games and they were trump games. So what was happening um, during this time in Northern Italy was that the philosophers of the time um, were, were writing about um, the concept of, of triumph, where things triumphed over other things, you know, and death and love and all these things. And, and, and so these 22 picture cards represent a triumphant um, progression. You know, um, most people don't realise that, that the um, um, carousel 
with all the horses and that, represented a parade, which is a triumphal procession that used to take place in courtyards. And, and, and the merry-go-round is representing this triumphal passage of things that triumph over others. Um, and, and so there'd be different characters in different carriages or on different horses. And different progression levels? Yes, absolutely. Sort of, so you can get to Nevada or heaven or, yes. or whatever? And so literally what, um, what they had done was captured what they felt the Catholic Church had lost, which was the true essence of the scriptures. And um, probably the one scripture that they were most aligned with was the Sermon on the Mount, um, which was the first uh, chapter 5, 6 and 7 in Matthew. So it was only one small part. And they felt that the rest of it had been, if it had any relevancy, had been bastardised by the church as far <laughs> as they were concerned. Yep. So what ended up happening um, out, of the, out of the Sermon on the Mount, they were particularly aligned with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit blister etc etc yes and so my book um and i like to think that i'm probably the first person to have actually seen the correlation i'm able to identify the correlation between the last 10 picture cards or eight of the last 10 picture cards and the eight beatitudes from the sermon on the mount and their pictures just give another whole dimension of understanding to those eight beatitudes and and basically the first four cards represent the journey of the dark night of the soul so they basically said what you have to do is leave this world of illusion yes and move into the kingdom of god and how you do that is to go through the dark night of the soul so the first four cards and the first four beatitudes are about how to make your way through the dark night of the soul and then being gnostics they talked about the passage into heaven as being the treasury of light and so the last four cards are all about light it's the star card the sun card the moon card and the 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 judgment card which has got the glory of god they're all about light and this is the these last four cards are how you make your way or progress your way through the treasury of light to then re-enter back into the kingdom of heaven. So how did you, um, because it, it's very obvious in the book that you've come across that correlation, and as you said, you're probably the uh, first person to really do that. How did you make that connection? Well, if you go back to my early story about drawing yes. the orbis on the side and with those figures, so while I'm sitting in Italy writing this, um, what happens is I'm looking at the magician card and he wears a hat that has this sort of lazy eight on it and so does the strength card. And it's nearly like they lifted off the page and it was saying, wear a key for unlocking how these cards are to be laid out and to be used. And so all of a sudden I took that and I started laying the cards out in a figure eight. And I had been drawing this using the snake symbol and drawing these images around the card for years before. And it hadn't really clicked to me until I was sitting in Italy. And I can still remember, um, I used to get up at three or four in the morning and start writing and my partner at the time would sleep and, and she'd wake up and I'd put these papers in front of her and say, start reading this <laughs> before she even had a chance to get out of bed. But I can remember this one more morning just waking up and I was just alive because I'd had the aha I'd unlocked the mystery of it and um, and it all started from that dream with the snake and and what went on but you know that makes so much sense because 
if just listening to you now, um, these cards were giving hidden messages and allowing a religion to continue that was essentially wiped out. Mm. So it would make a lot of common sense that there would be a key that you have to break through. And, you know, maybe other people have seen this over the time. I'm sure you're not the first person to ever see it, um, but it hasn't actually been passed on as knowledge. Mm. And for your readers, um, it's an incredible read to understand this true key and what it really represents. Talking about um, hidden messages, um, can you explain one of the cards that stood out for me was the Le Monde card. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain that? So the World card um, is is quite a, a an important card because it's sort of the centre pin to all of it, um, and and what you've got is a wreath there that takes the shape of uh, in Italy they would refer refer to it as a mandorla, which is almond shape, and that's the vesicus Pisces, it's the sacred yoni, and this is basically the the um, the only evidence of God that is actually shown in all the cards, because the Cathar didn't know what God was. But here we see um, basically the the genitals of of God, as a, which is the feminine face of God, is centred to this card. On the outside of that are four figures. There's a bull, a lion, an eagle, and an angel. And these are the tetramorphs and um, um, Ezekiel in, in the scriptures refers to them as being the faces of the cherubim. Um, so um, when God um, put a cherubim at the eastern gate. So Adam and Eve in the story kicked out of the garden. So they leave the presence of God and they've now developed um, um, consciousness or what we called um, differentiated consciousness. And yes. They now understand they're different to God and they're different because... These symbols, the bull represented physical, they became ashamed that they had they were naked. So they now were aware that they had a physical body that was different to God. The lion represents spirit, which is desire, what motivates us. Well, they expressed um, the desire to want to eat the fruit. You know, they actually went against God's word and made the decision that they were going to um, partake of the fruit. And then you've got the eagle represents the element of fear and or emotion, and they were fearful. They hid themselves because they were afraid of what was going to happen. And the the angel represents the element of thought. And so they had been thinking this through and discussing it and, and creating a strategy around what they were going to be doing. So in that moment, they became differentiated. So these, these symbols then represent um, aspects of differentiation. You know, and so it's kind of interesting that that um, after man was made, the animals were made. Here we see them, and so this is literally Adam and Eve leaving the garden, coming into um, 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 differentiated consciousness. Now they actually leave differentiated consciousness and go into human consciousness, which so is that, different again. Which is different again, and and so. The, the Cathar were reincarnationists. Yes. And so basically what would happen is you'd die, you'd go through judgment, and if you had aligned with Christ consciousness sufficiently, then you could enter back through the sacred yoni back into the presence of God. But if not, you'd be reincarnated, you'd come back to... So the first um, um, aspect is 
governed by the bull, which is the physical. Then you go into the mental. Then you go into uh, the lion. And then you go into, uh, which is the, the spiritual. And then you go into the emotional. So you sort of go through this, this process of realigning consciousness with the idea being that um, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, um, and this is an interesting thing. God puts two things at the eastern gate so they can't get back in easily. He puts a flaming sword and a cherubim. Now, you would think that they would be really important symbols that everyone who's a Christian should know about if they want to get back to the presence of God. I would. How many sermons have you heard about the flaming sword and the cherubim? I have never heard one. <laughs> but it's, it's you bringing this uh, into my consciousness actually made me sit back and think about all the lessons I had as a young boy in a Catholic private school. And they didn't bring any of this kind no. of information to it, which goes again to what you said, persecution. There's another card in there. And someone was telling me that people used to actually do this. It's the hangman. Right. And could you explain? I mean, I heard that in reality people would be hanged and they'd put dogs beside them or right. something so, like that. So when I was researching a, a man being hung upside down, the only real reference during this period was in Germany. And, and the, 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 it was common for Jews that were caught thieving or what have you to be hung upside down. And um, um, and it was sort of the most, because that's how they would hang animals. So in other yes. words, so back in medieval period, it was about um, the lowest form of human consciousness was, anim- was equated to animals. Then you had um, humans and then you had divine consciousness or Christ consciousness. And so depending on how good you were reflected how you were treated at death. And so somebody that had was a Jew and also a thief was the worst thing that you could possibly be. And so they would hang them upside down to reflect the fact that they were no higher than the animals. And they would often hang two live dogs beside them who would attack them while they were hanging there as well. See, and you don't think about that, but that's a a message from the tarot. That's like saying this is what, you know, actually happened in real life. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these things you're telling me uh, with the tarot, you can see the correlation between... Um, the times that they were around. The oh yeah, life. well, and that's the that's the beauty of my book is that I spent a lot of time researching what was going on at that time. So I look at what was happening politically, um, and I'm able to relate because those images have to be contemporary to the time. They have to mean something in the period that they were constructed. And so what I've been able to do is identify what was happening in northern Italy and, you know, the reason that there was German influence was that the Holy Roman Emperor was was a German king in nearly every situation. So we have this Germanic influence in Italy because of the Holy Roman Emperor. Yes. You know, so th- it has to be that way and that's the beauty of my book. It's not a fast read because there's so much information packed in here, but there's a lot of really good um, verified and interesting historical context. But the second half of the book is about the deep spiritual journey and it's about you know, and, and, and it's about saying that these people, these Cathars, understood a theology of love. They lived it, they walked it, and, and it was who they were. And, uh, and so um, that, what I've been able to do is unlock 
those core understandings that they had. And, you know, I like to think of the, 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 this deep mystery as it is, uh, is as being hidden in plain sight in these cards. Do you think about it? Here we have a set of cards that have been around combined for several hundred years and this has been hidden in them all this time. Nobody's known about these secrets for many, many, many years. So they weren't got rid of. They weren't destroyed. Church still called them the book of the devil, but they and and, and they did try to destroy them at different times, but they survived. And and in, I know that I'm sounding like I'm big noting myself, but he, here I am in in you know the, this century able to open this up and unlock the mysteries in it that have been sitting there for hundreds of years hidden. This is real Da Vinci Code stuff, by the way. <laughs> I, I was just about to say there's going to be a movie on this and it's going to be Da Vinci number 72. Uh, um, look, bottom line, I think you hit the nail on the head. Every human on earth wants to believe there's something else. And in fact, um, I think... There has to be, but that's just my own view. Um, and also, we all love a good mystery. Mm. I mean, every single person I've ever met wants to sit down and watch an Agatha Christie or wants to understand and find a piece of treasure. Well, your book definitely does that. And it also, interestingly, you said it starts really heavy and then it turns into light. And that's exactly what you have explained the cards are. So you're working on a lot of incredible levels that I think if anyone gets the pleasure of getting this book, and we will put the link in the bottom of the podcast uh, caption, you'd be doing yourself an incredible service. Well, once again, Russell, I truly can't thank you enough for giving me an insight. And now I'm going to go home and do nothing else but read this book <laughs> backwards, probably, because you've probably written it in some other kind of <laughs> you know, key. Um, and I really hope in the future we can sit down and we can talk more about it. So thank you. Be my pleasure. Thank you. All right, everybody. Well, that's another podcast done. And until next time, this is Fulfillment with your host, Dean Saffron. Peace and love, everybody. Mm-hmm.